The world around us is changing faster than ever before. before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome, Welcome. to Data Welcome. Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be, bold, be brave, be and be brave. fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Data Gurus. This is Seema Vasu, your host. A couple of months ago, I was invited to speak at the Dynata Client Summit Experience in Florida. It was a wonderful summit. We covered a lot of content. I actually participated in two sessions. And in this episode, I bring to you some of the key highlights as it relates to the session title, Placing Your Bets. And we really talk about where do we think the industry is going? What are some of the key challenges? We even talk about you know, the future of work and what does that look like? It, the episode is filled with good in perspective and information that I think you'll find valuable. Part of the panel discussion included Tom Johnson, who's the EVP and managing director of Dynata. He actually was the moderator. Mike Delaney, who's managing partner of Court Square Capital and the former CEO of Dynata, Gary Laban. Take a listen. I think you'll find it informative. Thank you for tuning in. Come back to the stage. Seema Vasa, who is, again, Chief Executive Officer and Founder of Infinity Squared Ventures. Seema, nice to have you. Welcome. <laughs> Next, Mike Delaney, uh, Managing Partner of Court Square Capital Partners. Mike, welcome. <laughs> nice to see you. And Gary Laban, needs no introduction. Thank you. So let's get started with a a question for everybody. In this morning's sessions, we heard about, and the panel's discussion about redefining our industry and how it's changed over the last five or so years. What's the biggest obstacle and gaps you see for our insights and marketing industry moving forward? Seema, maybe starting with you. I'm first. You're first. Okay. (laughs) I think one of the biggest things is change management, is helping clients understand what to do with the information that they're getting, being able to align resources within the organizations to capitalize on that information. But somebody's got to lead this process. Either brands are going to do it, MRA agencies are going to do it, or it might be a combination of both. But I think it's that's one of the biggest challenges is to get used to all the change that exists. We learned this morning each part of the value chain is being disrupted from the MRA to end clients and the marketing function. And I think nothing is going to stay the same. So how do we manage through all that change? Yeah. And change is hard. It's really hard. Right. And how would you prioritize in terms of what needs to change? Like what would you put at the top of the list of things that need to be addressed? Well, I think we've gone from a place where, oh, is it, wouldn't it be nice to see X, Y, and Z to now, as you heard this morning, everybody's drowning in data. And so what are the use cases that you really want to prioritize as a brand, as a company, and then align your data sources according to those use cases? Because otherwise, it's a fire hose. You don't know what to do. And I think people are becoming paralyzed to some degree in terms of all the information that's available. Yeah, yeah, that's a great answer. Gary, what are your thoughts? Change it just to focus a little bit differently. I think talent is being disrupted. 
And I think that's one of the greatest things we've seen. I mean, maybe accelerated in the last few years, of course. But it is just a completely different environment for acquiring and retaining and growing and developing. And we've had so many great conversations around the fact that we have to focus on our employees to ultimately have them focus on our clients. We, Paul referenced the work that his organization is doing in certifying his employees to be in the new world. I referenced myself just you know yesterday about the difficulties around uh, return to the office yeah. and that it is not a one-size-fits-all for even the company because there's different demographic groups that feel differently about that. I was listening to uh, CNBC this morning and David Salman, who um, runs Goldman Sachs, was actually live in person, which is good because he's the one on Wall Street who has said that everybody has to come back to work or else. And he was pressed on this one question and his answer, he actually moved the conversation more towards not being in the office, which is interesting because he was right there, everybody has to be in the <laughs> office, but he, was, he moved it to culture. Mm-hmm. And he says, if being in the office preserves and creates and grows our culture, then that's what we need to do if for some reason it can thrive in a different environment, and then that's fine. Uh, clearly, he, I don't believe he thinks that way. But the point being that there are so many unanswered questions in this particular area, and it is absolutely the heart of, you know, we think about data that drives our business, but at the end of the day, the people are what drives our data to drive this business. And I think there are far more questions still than answers around that. I've personally, over the last several trips I've made to customers here, uh, everybody knows because if you've spoken with me, I've probably asked you what's your return to work situation. And it's all over the map Mm -hmm. from we've abandoned all our offices and eliminated all our leases and everybody's on Zoom and they love it to we are 100% back in the office because we can't get any work done otherwise. And it's not just the return to the office. I just want to emphasize, I think it's the bigger idea. And I think we have to think about talent so differently now, including how do we, we talk a lot about partnership. How do we partner for talent beyond even what we employ? Mm -hmm. And maybe we do that even within our clients, within and among our relationships that we have. I have a small story to share on that one. So we recently got a puppy, and we need a puppy babysitter, basically, (laughs) for work. And I go on Rove, I think it's rover.com or rove.com, and we find somebody. And this gentleman is in his 20s. He works full-time, and he comes to our house like four hours a day. I'm like, I felt guilty. I'm like, what about your job? He works full-time in your kitchen. (laughs) That's That's his office. But he travels, he walks the dog, and I'm like, are you going to get in trouble for this? And he's like, they just measure me on when I get my work done. That's it. I'm like, wow. To me, that was eye-opening in that everybody's kind of flexing in different ways. How do you, Gary, you said, you know, part of it's really about culture. And if the culture requires people to be in the office, then that's the direction. How do you define that? How do you define your own culture and make the decision as to whether a culture does lean towards people in the office or more remote? Well, I think you have to have a set of values. And those values have to drive everything you do from what products you make, which channels you serve, the customers you work with, the incentivization you have in your organization to do good work, all of those. And then you have to have... You have to make sure that the requirement, the culture is defined as people living up to those values every day. 
And so one of them that I you know, didn't come across maybe in the way I described it, we have a, a value, it's called work hard, play hard. Mm-hmm. And I hope that you see both of that <laughs> here today. And so if we can't, we have to figure out a way to make that value come alive through and with our people. And that's, I think, what defines culture. And if we can't not only work hard, so get your work done no matter where yeah. you are, play hard, make sure that our clients feel valued and loved and beyond just the work that we do, mm-hmm. their families and things. If we, that's the culture. And if we can connect that, then I think that's what it means. Yeah. So, Mike, across your Cord Square portfolio companies, what do you see regarding kind of work from home and culture as, you know, best practice companies? How are they dealing with this? Well, you know, it's been interesting to watch because we probably have 20 to 25 companies in our portfolio at any given time, and they're every shape and form you can imagine from a couple hundred employees to, you know, thousands and thousands of employees global companies and relatively, you know, just U.S.-based businesses. And, you know, I think a lot of people feel the way Gary does, which is that being in the office, a lot of leadership, being in the office is very important because, the you know, it's where you build culture and it's hard to do that virtually. Unfortunately, you know, a lot of the workers don't feel the same way. <laughs> and we've seen a couple of our portfolio companies try to, you know, mandate coming back into the office and, they saw a pretty high resignation rate as yeah. a result of that. And so they had to back off, not dissimilar to what's happened with J.P. Morgan and Goldman. And so they had to adjust to that and go to a more virtual environment. I think it's going to get sorted out, but it's not going to get sorted out in the short run. I think it's going to get sorted out in the long run because, and I do believe this, that you know, culture is probably the single most important thing that defines who's going to win in the marketplace. And when you start to see those businesses succeed because their culture and they figured out a way either to execute better in a virtual environment or more importantly, that they convince people being back in the office is going to make us a bigger, better company and give you a richer experience. I think that's ultimately going to play out in the marketplace and people are going to see that culture does make a difference and it's hard to create and sustain culture in a virtual world. Yeah. Right. I mentioned yesterday that my daughter just recently graduated from college and took a new job and it's remote. She works from her apartment in Dallas and, you know, she wants to go back into the office Mm -hmm. because she wants to learn. She doesn't want to be isolated in her own apartment. And yet when she goes in, there's nobody there. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's a problem. And I think sometimes people don't know what they're missing. But anyway, easy for me. I do think the younger generation that's just coming into the workforce suffers because they don't get that connection with the company, its values, and, you know, they're still lonely. I mean, work used to be a source of friendship and camaraderie when you first get out of college. And so they don't know what they don't know, but yet a lot of people are kind of bucking the system and saying, I don't want to come back in. Yeah, it's so right. Yeah. So, by the way, I should make a proper introduction, who's Court Square Chairman of the Dynata Board. And as you've watched our business over the years, and seen the industry as well. What's some advice that you can give as to leaders in our industry about what they should focus on to ensure that you know, we have success and help move our industry forward? Well, it's, we've been involved in investing in marketing for marketing-type businesses for 
40 years. And so, you know, I've been with Courtsquare for 33 years now. And so we've kind of grown up with the marketing industry. And it's pretty fascinating to see how much has evolved, how much has changed. And I was thinking the other day that, you know, back in the late 80s and early 90s, when we would go to look at investing in a business, we obviously had business due diligence to do. And we typically brought in finance experts, accounting experts to help us do the accounting diligence. And that was really the focus of the diligence. Now we take a look at when we go in and maybe 10 years ago, we started doing a lot of technology diligence, understanding how technology can impact the business, both as it goes to market as well as how efficient, how it operates efficiently. How do you use technology to really differentiate yourself? And for the first time about a year ago, we started doing that with marketing. And marketing was always, you know, again, going back 20, 30 years with a little bit of an afterthought Mm -hmm. as an investor. And now we see it as a real differentiator in how we can grow our businesses. And so it just struck me that it's amazing how far marketing has come in terms of it's important to value creation within the enterprise. And a lot of it gets around to what's near and dear to everybody's heart here today, and that is data collection. Because that's really, at the end of the day, data collection, and I'll get to what I think is important as we go forward, allows these companies, allows the businesses to be able to make much more informed decisions and, as a result, have a lot more success. Instead of, I always used to tell our young guys, when you, you know, data is kind of king, and when you meet a management team, when you ask them why they do a particular thing, and they said, they either say one of two things. One is, well, that's what we did last time. Or two, that was kind of, you know, I've been around a long time, but yeah, I can feel it in my gut. And then that was usually a red flag that you're dealing with someone who really yeah. was too lazy to really find out, you know, what the fact set was and what the data was. And so it's been really terrific to watch the business evolve. I think the real choke point today, and I speak more as an investor in middle market companies, is that there's so much data that the typical marketing executive who usually is working with a relatively small team of anywhere from two to a half a dozen people doesn't isn't able to consume it in a way that is value added to them mm-hmm. in their business. And so consequently, they're overwhelmed by it and it's difficult for them to take full advantage of what the industry's created. So as I kind of look at the challenge for everybody in this room is how do we make what we're doing for it easier to be consumed, more tangible for them in terms of how it really translates into actions. Because when we do that, despite, you know, even though marketing is front and center these days in terms of its importance to the enterprise, it's going to explode mm-hmm. in terms of its value to, to the executive team and growing their business. And making that connection between taking all that data, how do I use it? How do I consume it? How do I translate it into an action plan? is the choke point that I see in a lot of our companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You're in your I, I think that's, building on that, because I think that's, that's so spot on, um, we have so many places in our organization where we can draw data um, <clears throat> to become some sort of key performance indicator for mm-hmm. how the business is, is going. And uh, if we were to create a dashboard well, we have a set of KPIs, and there's only nine of them. I say only nine because it started, you know, there would be 40 or 50. But then you find out some are rearward-looking. They're really not forward-looking. Some are built on one of the other nine. And, and when it finally comes down to it, being very disciplined about what's really important. And by the way, that changes, right? So those KPIs um, 
can be very different depending on the life cycle of the business. I mean, if, if a company is preparing to IPO, I imagine there's a KPI that's relevant to sort of that, at least the end of that process, versus a, a company that is going for just pure revenue growth at, at all, you know, at all profit costs. And so establishing what that is for the right period of time um, and, and doggedly leaning into what those numbers are and not letting the other extraneous numbers sort of influence that, I think is, mm-hmm. is very important because it builds on the fact that there is so much, so much data running around. And Brad referenced that earlier in the day where, you know, his team just has, you know, it, it's the, the peanuts buzz yeah. going on. Yeah. And if you, if you don't, if you can't get the signal from the noise, um, then it's, it's all noise. Yeah. And he, it seemed like their company did a nice job of saying, hey, these are the five key performance mm-hmm. indicators. We're really going to stick to them. And it, it helps keep that focus. You so know, that, oh, go ahead. You know what's interesting is that I think last year around this time, we were talking about democratizing data and insights. And 12 months later, 15 months later, it's almost like there's data overload. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking about oh, that because we, we actually were talking about Agile insights yes. and speed and democratizing data. And it's almost like we're taking a step yeah, back yeah. and saying, wait a minute, how do we do that? Mm-hmm. So I'll ask you the million dollar unanswerable question here, which is like, how, what's your advice? How, how do leaders start to think about, in addition to prioritizing the data points that they really care about, what are some other ways they can take all these different disparate data sources mm-hmm. to help them make better decisions? Well, I think, um, if you're talking about enterprises, I think there has to be a cultural shift in saying data is owned by the organization. Just because you have point of sale data and I have survey data and I have behavioral data, it has to live and coexist culturally as part of the entire organization. So that's the first cultural shift because, you know, I've, t- I've talked to people at Microsoft where one person owns social intelligence listening, the other person does UX. They're not coming together. It's still very siloed yeah, in right. terms of ownership of data. So that's, that's one. And that's got to come from the top. Um, number two, I, I do go back to data is supposed to help inform decisions. It, it's, it's the discipline of saying, it, it's like going to the candy shop and saying, oh my gosh, there's so much good candy here. I think, I think we can't look at data that way. I think we have to look at what questions do we need to have answered and then pull in the right data sets to get to that. And be, and be really super disciplined. I always say, when you start saying, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have dead on arrival? <laughs> yeah. Right? It's dead on arrival. You, what, what decisions am I trying to make? And what information do I need to inform that decision? Yeah, I, I might even build on that to sure. say, and make the decision. And make the decision, that, right? that's right. So you get, you get the data, and maybe it's not you know, 100% obvious yeah. what to do, you still have to make a decision. Yes. It could be to go get another piece of data. Mm-hmm. It could be to make a brave decision, which is I'm going to go, it's a 60-40, I'm going with the 60, yes. uh, and then get everybody aligned to go in yep. with the 60. But if you have all that data and you don't execute the decision for which it was purposed, then, I mean... What's the point of it? What's the point? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What's the advice, to, you know, market research agencies t- selling into corporate insights departments? Um, 
But if the insights aren't always talking to the marketing mm-hmm. folks and, and the product teams, and it, how would you, how is the best way to deal with that in your mind? Well, I think it, it spoke to what Paul was saying in terms of reimagining the role of an agency. You know, it, they, they need to help the insights people get to those departments. They need to understand business. They need to be able to understand what decisions are these different functions making. Like what, what, what's top of mind of their agenda and help those consumer insights professionals lean into those other organizations. It's, it's easier than it sounds, but you know, I know a lot of MR agencies are hiring consultants yeah. to help make that shift. Yep. Got it. Okay. Gary, question for you, which is as CEO for the world's largest first party data company, what is Dynata doing to transform itself by connecting the insights and marketing industry to grow its addressable market? I mean, we're on a journey to use our data in more places than for which it was originally, you know, ideated. Mm -hmm. And the one part that the, you know, sort of the client world sees is that they see it in the form of new products and services. But that's sort of the icing on the cake. And there's not only the layers below, that was the baking of the whole thing in the process. And so we've had to retool a whole host of our technology to make it fit for an extended and broader application um, we were just talking with a client just at lunch around the fact that we have to secure additional permissions and so uh, you know, with our panelists for the use of this application and that's an entire, you know, that is not a you know, push a button and it's done process and it also has is a legal framework to go through as well. There's training. We have to have very capable individuals whose knowledge of the business we're going to not the one necessarily that we're in or that we're, you know, moving or extending, but going to, right? So because people have to look at the destination, right? I mean, in order to understand the journey that we're going to be on. And so there's that. And then there is, going back to the cultural word, there are folks who never wanted to make that journey, who never thought we would do that, or never thought we should do that who are very, very valuable players in the company. And so how do you create, we have to create a, um, an ecosystem where there's acknowledgement of that, but the opportunity for people to, you know, for us to move forward and to drive the business so we can just essentially provide more value. You know, simply when we think about that extension, the first level is everybody who's sort of, a customer of ours today in the products that we build tomorrow, they should still be buying those new products. It's not about, oh, we're going to go find a brand new set of customers to whom we've never spoken. It's, it's really about extending our value creation, our value proposition for them so that we can be more valuable in their overall you know, day-to-day job. Yeah. A related question. What are the skill sets just in the industry as a whole that you think are most critical? I think one of the things that came up earlier is just the ability to be a storyteller as a skill set that's highly valued. Are there some others you can think of that are critical for our industry? I think that when you think about sort of individuals, we tend, we're, we're very repetitive. We, mm-hmm. I mean, you think when you put a kid back in school, they talk about how the process, the day is we're going to be very repetitive because kids like that. They feel comfortable and secure in that. 
and everything that we've talked about up till now never had more data than you know we've had more data than we can ever consume we have a population of talents that we you know maybe is a little uncontrollable we don't know how to we have to be willing to sort of not feel comfortable we have to get out of our comfort zone and so the skill is really about obsoleting our instantiated behaviors mm-hmm. i think yeah and be willing to to do something that is data-driven and informed, but maybe completely the opposite of you know how we might be programmed to think about it. And I, so I think that's something that we just really have to think yeah. hard and fast Absolutely about. Absolutely agree. And as we talked about a little bit yesterday, willing to take risk, willing to fail and learn from failing, I think is also, you know, with that, out of your comfort zone, but be willing to be out of your comfort zone and okay to fail and learn from it. Yeah. It really speaks to the whole individual, not just the work persona, but the entire persona of the person, because failure in cultures is ingrained as terrible. But then you come to work and you say, fail, it's okay. And so all of a sudden, we're now thinking about the nuances of different cultural expectations as it relates to culture, Yeah, especially as we get more diverse in the workforce. Yeah, that's so true. Mike, we've hit a lot of economic turbulence. Interest rates are going way up. You know, the amount of, I think, deals that are happening in the market has gone way down. What's your take on that in our industry in in particular? and, And what do you see for the foreseeable future? I think for the first time in a really long time, risk is getting re rated. <laughs> and we've gone through little waves of that over the last 30 some odd years. Really haven't had a massive re rating of risk in probably almost 40 years, you know, going back really to, you know, to the 80s. You know, if you think about the last couple of recessions we have, they were all credit driven recessions, meaning that the solution was to flood the market with liquidity. And so whether it was COVID, where there was a substantial influx of capital from the government, whether it was, you know, before that we had the bank meltdown. And so obviously the only solution there was to flood the market with liquidity. And we did that. And then before that, you know, you had the dot-com bubble, which really was a relatively modest downturn in the business. And one of the things that that I think surprised a lot of people was the government was able to flood the marketplace and uh, with, with liquidity and help cushion the, what was going on from an economic standpoint. And they were able to do that without having an inflationary environment. And for the very first time, the Fed is facing an environment where they're seeing inflation, surprising amount of inflation, which is a little frightening that, that they didn't see it coming didn't see it coming. And so they're petrified about inflation becoming institutionalized like it was back in the 70s, and which makes it very difficult to get inflation under control. It, it, it takes a lot of pain. So that's why you're seeing them behave the way they're behaving in terms of jacking up rates aggressively until they see inflation starting to come down pretty substantially. And so for a long time, if you look at it over the last 30 years, rates have done nothing but go down, and primarily because the government's made credit easy. So what does that really have to do with ultimately investments? What it really comes down to is is that if you were a company, to put it just on a company level, and you had excess cash flow coming out of your business, and your decision was, oh, should I pay down my debt, which may be cost me 3 or 4%, or should I take that capital and reinvest it in my business in some form? It was a much easier, lower-risk decision for you because, eh, 
I'm only giving up a three or four percent return on capital by paying that back. Why, you know, I, surely I can find something better than that in my company to use the capital for. Well, now that equation has changed quite a bit, and people are looking around, and cost of debt has gone up dramatically. It's debt's easier to understand because there's rates out there you can look at and see how the rates are done. But the same thing's happening in equity. People's expectations are, you know, they're demanding a higher return on their equity investments. And so in raising equity capital, whether it's on the venture side or whether it's even the stock market, you know, demands of the investors, the rates that they're looking for are going up dramatically. Mm-hmm. You just don't see it as much because there's not a index that you can look at and say, oh, you know, here's what treasury rates are. Here's what corporate rates are. Here's what high yield rates are. And unlike in the past, the Fed doesn't have the luxury of fighting that because they have to increase rates. And so everybody is out there looking for higher rates of return, which means you know, you as as a marketing department or anybody who's is running a business is now going saying, oh, well, maybe I should pay down some debt or maybe I need to drive a little bit better earnings in my business and higher, you know, higher EPS. And so therefore, I shouldn't be making all these investments that perhaps I could justify three or four percent, but I no longer can justify it or seven or eight or nine or 10 percent. And so I think you're going to see a real re-rating, whether it's in the corporate room, whether it's in the venture capital investor community, whether it's in the private equity community, a re-rating of how much risk is going to cost and their willingness to put capital into those particular investments. And I think it's going to impact marketing. I mean, the good news is that marketing, I think, differently than 20 years ago, is able to go to the C-suite and say, the capital you give me Mm-hmm. This is the rate of return that I'm delivering for it. I couldn't do that 20 years ago. And, you know, uh, CEOs looked at it and say, oh, there's I can cut my marketing budget. And because there was no way of knowing whether it was really going to impact this business or not. Now, a large part of the marketing budget is going to things where a CEO can look at it and goes, well, I'm getting a 20 percent return or 15 percent rate of return. And hell, that's still better than seven or eight or nine or 10 percent uh, pay down of debt. So I think from a marketing standpoint, the marketing budgets are getting a lot more respect than they used to, which is great news because you have the ability to prove out that you're providing people a return on capital. But I think it's this, we're looking at something that's very different. And I know it's been a long time. I doubt there's very many people in here who actually were in, in the professional world back in the 80s. But, you know, rates were 17, 18 percent. And it was a very, very different world. And we haven't seen that in a long time. And we're now going into an environment where those rates are all changing and, and consequently the cost to take risk are going up substantially. So it's going to affect everything from, you know, what you can sell your business for, what you can borrow money for, and it's going to affect how CEOs allocate capital within their businesses. Yeah. One thing I've, we've seen with so many of the presentations is the focus on revenue, revenue, revenue. And you know, I think we always think that every year that comes up, but it's more so now. I think mm-hmm. people are laser focused on ensuring they're maximizing their opportunity to drive highest revenue they can so that they can make sure that, that the company has enough to make the right investments. Yeah. Um, yeah. And well, and this, and this is why, you know, people like us are now looking at diligence up front to understand where the marketing spend is and whether they're optimizing that spend in terms of driving the top line. Right. And because it's a real lever that, frankly, as investors, we never really thought about, you know, 20 years ago, probably not even 10 years ago, we really gave it a lot of thought. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. Okay, so one more question, then we'll, I'm sure there's some questions from the audience, but I bet the audience would love to hear your top prediction, right? Over the next two or three years, our industry, where is it going? What can we expect to see? Kind of the top idea. I'm going to build on something or stick to something I said yesterday. I think that uh, as quickly as we've moved in the last few years from We'll continue to do that to expand and, and extend our data throughout the marketing suite and the marketing ecosystem. But I, I think that insights will be a term that will be used beyond marketing and will be used in underwriting and in healthcare. And, and again, not in for research in the channel, market research in the channels, but actually to drive those outcomes. Because I think the data that we create and you know, I was struck by, uh, reminded by, I should say, Chuck's presentation, where, you know, we're able to take different types of data, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just a qualitative survey, but it's a video, and it's a search, and it's a song, and we're able to synthesize that and put that, those relevant pieces in front of people. That has to lead to decisions that can be, to lead to aid decisions outside of just which is important, should I build my product or should I expand in this market? You know, all the things that we traditionally do every day. And I think that will be really phenomenal. And so the 90 billion that we reference and the 1 trillion, if you will, in advertising, I think, you know, you get up to 3 and 4 trillion TAMs that where the data can make a difference. And our ability collectively in the room to do whatever part we serve in that journey, right? Some of us secure and curate that. Some of us create the insight from that. Some of us display that. Whatever that might be, all of us have the opportunity to be part of that, I think, expansive marketplace. Yeah. Gary and I talked about this yesterday as well. I'm optimistic for that change to happen. I think from a human perspective, I think we'll have more data literacy in the population of people. So it's not confined to one area in a company as we start building our knowledge and tools that enable that to happen, yeah. which supports the bigger TAM. Right. Mike, any other thoughts on this? Yeah, no, I, like, I agree with all that. That's why I said earlier that I think you know the single biggest challenge is being able to take all that data and to put it in a product and a insights that actually allow companies to be able to use it more effectively. Because right now they're overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And it may not seem it you know, within this group, because you guys live marketing and data, you know, every day, but marketing, you know, and data is so underpenetrated <laughs> within corporations. It's really kind of shocking. And so there is a tremendous application out there, but it's also, you know, your audience is so less sophisticated mm -hmm. <laughs> than the people that maybe you interface with all day long. And unless you're able to give it to them in a simpler fashion that they can they can use it, you're going to have trouble penetrating that audience. But it's shocking how underpenetrated it is. And you're seeing people, you know, we see businesses out there all day that they're in relatively mundane industries, but they latched on to the idea that there is a way, better way for them to capture customers and using data and digital marketing to be able to go out and do that as compared to an, you know, their competitors who are largely doing the same old things that they've done for the last 40 years. And it's shocking the impact it's had on those businesses that are willing to embrace data and willing to embrace the digital world. And you, I think, frankly, one of the silver linings of COVID was that it actually accelerated that because it was really one of the few avenues you had and to be able to reach the audience. 
but it's pretty amazing. So you can really kind of see what a difference between somebody who adapts, you know, a more modern approach to customer acquisition versus their traditional, you know, almost an ABD, AB test. And it's shocking what kind of an impact it's, it can have on a business. I think we're out of time here, but thank you so much. That was thank a really you. good oh, thank you. Thank really you. appreciate it. Teams are in flux, but you still have to get your research in field. Partnership with Paradigm Sample means you get our expert focus on every detail of your project. We have access to over 1 million consumers and many business professionals who are eager to voice their opinions and participate in traditional and non-traditional online studies, whether it comes to sampling, programming and hosting services or consultation. We are agile and quick to meet your needs. Visit ParadigmSample.com today. Thank you for tuning in to Data Guru's podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.dataguruspodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. exclusively. That's www.dataguruspodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.